Hello, good afternoon and welcome uh, to today's webinar. My name's Toby Johncox, I'm head of Ennis Dubai. Um, for those of you who don't know me, Ennis is the world's leading high net worth and ultra high net worth mortgage brokerages uh, with offices across the world in London, Monaco, Jersey, Dubai, Geneva, and many more popping up very, very soon. Um, so I'm, I'm really pleased to be joined today by two fantastic uh, panelists um, who I'll just briefly introduce for you now. Um, so Christopher Dungan, a great friend of mine, first or second classiest man in Dubai and regional director of Fiduci Middle East. Um, Fiduci is a private client company, corporate funds, employee and yacht services firm with offices in Jersey, Dubai and London. Um, and joining us today as well will be Alistair Glover, close friend, fabulous golfer and head of private wealth GCC for Trowes and Hamlins. Um, Trowes is a UK multi-practice law firm with offices across the Gulf. Um, so Alistair, Christopher, you can both hear me and you're both in the room? Absolutely. Good afternoon. Yeah, hi everyone. Hi. hi Toby. Great. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you for both joining us. Um, the webinar today is focused around tax, offshore structuring and how clients can benefit um, from planning ahead and utilising the advice of the knowledge that both of you hold inside. Um, so to get straight stuck into it, um, we've got a great audience already. Um, Chris, what is structuring? Um, what is meant by it? And what are these things called structures? <laughs> okay, um, <clears throat> it's actually a lot simpler than, than, than many, people, many people think. Um, a structure in terms of um, uh, asset holding is essentially anything that you establish to uh, own an asset um, other than yourself. So, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about SPVs and SPV is anything you like, basically, that can hold and own an asset other than an indiv individual person. So it could be a company, it could be a partnership, uh, it could be a trust, it could be a fund, foundation. Um, yeah, it's the, there's uh, lots of different kinds. And well, I guess a collection of all of those things possibly as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So a lot of times you'll, you'll have companies that are in turn owned by um, a sort of overarching structure, which would usually be a trust or a foundation. Yeah, fine. Okay. And why would you hold assets in a structure? What, what does it make sense? Does it not make sense? What, what are the reasonings? Um, well, sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. Um, you know, e each case is, is different, right? There's no one size fits all when it comes to structuring. You've got to look at each, each client and each scenario and the assets they have and where the assets are um, in, uh, in isolation. Um, you know, and it, it could be any sort of asset, right? So it could be real estate, could be uh, shares in businesses or um, it could be uh, liquid assets. Now, why do people do it? Obviously, there is the, um, the, the, the tax advantages uh, that uh, can happen. And Alistair, I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit more later. Um, but, right. but it's more than that, really. It's, it's also to do with uh, succession planning within families, um, protecting those assets, so separating them legally from, from yourself, um, uh, as well as... Uh, a relief from administrative burden, you know, in a world that's increasingly complex, uh, yeah. fiscal and financial regulations, uh, sometimes 
you know, individuals don't want to have to deal with, uh, with those things and they would rather appoint um, professionals who do that for a living to do it on their behalf. Yeah, and I mean, I've been to a million and one web webinars, conferences, meetings, after dinner drinks over the last 12 months, 18 months. This buzzword succession planning is humongous in the Middle East and I think globally. Alistair, why would you and how would you use structures to, to help with succession planning? Um, yeah, there's uh, a lot of options as, uh, as we've been talking about. And, but using any of the vehicles that uh, Chris just mentioned is likely to help you in that process um, to a certain extent. So how, why, why would you do it? I mean, the, the reason for that is that a lot of individuals will acquire assets over a number of different years um, and in different jurisdictions. Now, um, all of those different jurisdictions will have their own rules, for example, in relation to succession um, and how those assets pass in the future, um, who can benefit from them. So um, by using a succession structure, whether it's a holding company, something as basic as that, right up to a, a trust or foundation, uh, gives you um, that, that degree of control and certainty over the future ownership. Because by transferring assets in your lifetime to said structure, then uh, you have a, a much greater degree of, of continuity going forwards, which can obviously benefit um, different family members, for, for example. But equally important, I think, Toby, is uh, that you know, with, with these structures, it's not just the family context. I mean, you look at it from a, maybe a co-investment perspective, for example. So you know, using SPVs and so on um, is very useful where you've got different people pooling uh, resources and, and putting up the finance maybe to uh, acquire an office block in the UK or, or whatever it is. Yeah, fine. And we're going to be slightly biased today because I organised the webinar and my focus is UK real estate, but these structures can be used to hold any type of asset really, right? And that includes UK or further afield, US, European or, or wherever your assets might be, might be placed. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the case. I mean, it, 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 these structures, as I said before, are not one size fits all, right? It's very flexible. Um, whatever assets people want to put in them, um, obviously we, we assist them to do that and get, you know, relevant tax advice to make sure that there's no, uh, you know, cost to it and to ensure that the, the benefit is there. But yeah, global assets of any kind can be placed into a structure for succession planning or, or otherwise. Fine. In terms of types of structure, I mean, I see the structure charts, I see the way people do it, but my, my, I guess my deep-rooted understanding of the types of structures available is pretty limited. You mentioned trusts, companies, foundations. Is there, is there a quick whistle-stop tour of what those are um, you can maybe give us, um, Dunn? Yeah, sure. I mean, so we'll start with the simplest one, the one that everyone's familiar with, which is a company, right? A company is, everyone knows what a company is. Um, it, you know, individual people can own the company. Um, a lot of families in the Middle East have family businesses. Those are all companies. They're, they're the type of structure that, you know, everyone's familiar with. Uh, a company is a legal entity, so it can own something in its own right. Um, now, when we talk about structuring, a lot of times we'll have uh, something that sits on top of that company to add the layer of protection or, or uh, the succession planning benefits. Um, 
Now, traditionally, that's been a trust, especially in common law countries. Um, a trust is not a legal entity. A trust is just a contract where you're giving your assets, so usually the shares in that company, which owns your real estate, for example, <clears throat> to a third party to hold for your benefit. Um, and the benefit of that is that the legal ownership is then no longer in your name. So, for example, a trust does not die. So a trust can carry on for the benefit of the family you know, in perpetuity. Um, a foundation is sort of a hybrid of a, of, a, of a trust in a company. It's got the advantages of a trust in that it, you know, it, it also doesn't die. Um, but like a company, it's a legal entity, but without shareholders. So it exists, again, for the benefit of a group of people, usually you know, a family or, or a charitable organization. Fine. Super interesting. And we mentioned already that these assets can be anywhere in the world. Um, but equally, the structures that you're, you're talking about there, the companies, the foundations, the trusts, they can be, um, they can be played based anywhere in the world as well. Now, Fiduci is a Jersey-based firm. And yeah. uh, you've spent a bit of time there. I understand your bias would be that Jersey is a great place to set up and hold your structure. Uh, yes, it would be. Yeah. Any good reason? <laughs> because you like it there? Um, it, Jer Jersey's a very well-established, um, you know, international finance center. It's got, you know, 800 years of, of legal precedent. Um, you know, it's politically and economically secure. It's tax neutral, as are, you know, the majority of offshore jurisdictions. Um, you know, from this part of the world, uh, it's got logistical advantages. Um, you, you know, time zone, for example, much more advantageous in the Caribbean. Uh, you know, you've got a number of Jersey firms who have a presence or at least an interest in this region. Um, you know, and I think that uh, there's also very good relations between the, the governments of this part of the world and, and the governments of Jersey. Uh, and, you know, indeed the sort of uh, uh, British culture that it has, uh, you know, resonates here as well. Yeah, and of course, I mean, the, may, the way most of us have met in the region in the private client world is through Jersey Finance, who also do a fantastic job of connecting all the various Jersey firms and their, their activity in, in, in the region. Um, Alistair, maybe an argument as to why you might not want to do Jersey or, or, or other jurisdictions that might also be interesting? Yeah, uh, far be it from me to uh, pour cold water over Chris's remarks. But look, Jersey's a good jurisdiction for, for offshore structuring. Um, but there are loads of others. It's, it's a question that comes up time and again for me from clients is, you know, I've heard of all these different weird and wonderful offshore jurisdictions. Which one is, is the right one? Um, there are great reasons to, to go with Jersey, but equally there may be um, reasons to, to look at other jurisdictions, you know, Cayman, DVI, um, wherever it may be. Now Mauritius, let's say. And, and often the reasons are are quite simple so so one would be tax um you know different jurisdictions have different a different network of double tax treaties with other countries you know sometimes for european investments clients will be looking at luxembourg for example um you know because it has uh, treaty advantages in certain certain cases um so that's often a, a big driver the other reason would be you know more practical one so you know what's the cost uh, is Jersey uh, as cost-effective as some other jurisdictions and so on uh, range of service providers proximity to the location you're in so if you're in the US you might prefer Cayman 
it's just on a, a more similar time zone um, than, say, a jersey. But for Middle East investors, look, Jer jerseys are a good jurisdiction for this type of thing. Yeah, fine. Fantastic. And you, and you mentioned just then tax. I think we, if we move on to our second subject, but before, before I get into that, there is, uh, I forgot to mention at the start, which I do in every webinar, there is a question and answer function on the webinar. So if you do have any questions, please fire them in. And at the end, we'll go through and answer every single one. And Chris and, and Alison will give their, their best opinions on, on your questions. So look, we could host a million and one sessions about various different tax regimes globally how they work, what, what you, you know, ways of structuring things in order to make sure you, you mitigate that. But today we'll focus, as I mentioned before, on the UK um, and in particular, um, the UK real estate market. Um, Alistair, the UK tax system is a complicated beast. Um, what are the various considerations to take on when, when structuring UK assets in, um, in structures? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, as you said, the UK uh, tax regime is, is pretty complicated um, and especially to the un uninitiated. So at the end of the day, you know, it's key to get good advice, you know, from a firm such as ourselves. Um, but just to give an overview, I mean, really, when you're looking at these things from, for, for the client, the, the, the types of questions that you're going to ask straight away from a UK perspective are, what type of property are we talking about? So are we looking at commercial property? So office blocks, warehouses, hotels, um, and so on. Or are we looking at residential property? Um, so it's really important. Just remember there's a big distinction in the tax treatment between the two different asset classes. So definitely no one size uh, fits all approach. Now, the one that comes across my desk most of all, um, Toby, and I think is most relevant to you is, is the residential side. And that's probably the area that um, most people who might be tuning in today would be interested to, to, to know a bit more about. And again, there, um, there's some sort of key questions you, you'd ask at the outset. And, and they are, um, you know, what is the intended use of this property? So are we gonna be using it for the family as a holiday home or a residence? Um, or is it for investment purposes? You know, you're going to buy a series of properties and, and build a portfolio in the UK. Um, allied to that, we'd also be interested to know, you know, if particularly if it's investment, is the client going to use uh, any debt to acquire the assets? Because that's going to have a big impact on how you you choose to to structure it. And you'll be looking at all the all the different taxes uh, going into this when you when you're looking and deciding on, on what the right structure is. So uh, you've got your taxes on acquisition, things like stamp duty land tax that you have to think about. And then uh, going forwards, you have to uh, think about income tax if there's uh, an investment angle to it. And to be honest with you, income tax, again, just as a sort of takeaway from, from this summary is, is probably the biggest driver when you're talking about uh, investment and whether or not you should structure it using a company or a trust or buying individually. Um, so that's what we're seeing. And then the big, the kind of big tax, uh, I, get, I suppose, uh, worry for a lot of clients is, is inheritance tax in the UK. And that's become more of an issue in, in recent years for clients because the UK has changed the rules. So there you're looking at trying to mitigate uh, a 40% tax charge on the, on the value of the asset. 
um, and that's where the uh, the advice and, and structuring can can help. Can help. And to go back to, you know, mortgage broker, I'm not the guy that structural things and helps. But from from an income tax perspective, how how does having it in a structure make a difference? What, what's the you know what's the sort of solution if that makes sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so let's unpick it a little bit more. The um, on the income tax side, um, if you if you're renting out your property as an individual, then you're liable to UK tax. Even if you're not resident, a lot of people aren't aware of that. So you're living out here in the Gulf. Let's say you buy property in the UK, um, you are subject to UK tax as if effectively you are a UK resident, which means that the top rate of tax is 45% on the income uh, versus a company which is now subject to UK corporation tax. Again, wherever it's uh, res uh, resident or domiciled, um, and that rate is much lower at 19%. Um, so that's really where that big distinction comes in. You've also, you know, a bit, it's a bit more of a technical point, but very important is that if you are using debt in your structure, then if you're an individual, there's a restriction on the amount of the mortgage interest that you can deduct in calculating your profits and that that is restricted to 20% of your finance costs basically a company does not have the same restrictions so if we're talking about something with a bit of scale to it then very often you'll be you'll be looking at a company very closely and and that might well be the the way to go yeah so i guess on the on the smaller sort of assets in the uk where maybe your income tax rate after you've got your your minimum minimum threshold is only 20 percent it's difficult to decide but if you're if you're if you're then in a boat where you're paying 40 45 percent tax plus you're having a, a lesser reduction on the cost of debt it makes a huge difference presumably on uh the cost of tax costs uh, or income tax costs if you hold it in that structure yeah okay. and and then my other my other interesting bit you mentioned um inheritance tax I mean, it's a big one. It's really popular. For a long time, it wasn't any of the concern of anyone globally. And certainly, you know, in the Middle East, many people still aren't necessarily up to tune on that. But am I right to say that everyone globally on UK assets pays 40% inheritance tax on, on death? That's right, Toby. Yeah, if it's, if it's a UK situated or situs asset, so it sits there in the UK like a piece of land, um, then it's subject to 40% inheritance tax and the traditional way to structure around that for uh, clients who, who, who are from the UK is to is to buy through an offshore company because then you're you're changing the nature of the asset you own from that UK land into the shares in say a, a Jersey company that someone like Christopher could set up for you but in respect of residential property so again the distinction there between commercial and residential is key um, the tax rules have changed so that even if you hold your real estate through an offshore company um, in the UK, the, the shares will now be subject to inheritance tax. So you've got to think about other ways to structure around that. Um, and we can discuss those if, if you'd like. Yeah, I think, I think when you get to the nitty gritty like that, it's best to contact you directly outside of the webinar. Um, at the end of the session, everyone who's watching, I'll share both Christopher and, and Alistair's contact details. Um, and then you'll be able to go direct to them for, for sort of the my, minute 
detail. Um, I think one big thing that comes up that, 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 that is valid is when you hold a company in a structure, there is ATE tax. Whereas when you don't hold it in your personal names, there is no ATE tax, which is, which is, which is coming in recent years. Um, and then the other benefit I can only see, which is potentially changing over the, the in the foreseeable future is, is the discretion that a company gives you. Um, certainly for the more prominent individuals globally, um, they may want to hold the, 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 the property, commercial or residential, within a structure just to keep their name away from the public eye, should we say. Um, but look, the, the main thing, I guess, from, from everyone sitting at home, without coming to you and paying you and getting all the advice and getting the structure set up properly, what are the rules of thumb? You know, you know the, the way the wind blows, what would you say is, you know, you're buying a residential property in London, on your own, we, we use a case study, I'm buying my family home, my wife's gonna move home, she's taking the family home, they're gonna set up in London, I'm buying the house with her. Do we hold that sort of asset in a, in a structure or would I keep that just in, in our personal names? In all likelihood, you'd keep it in your, your personal names at the moment to avoid that ATED, which is the annual tax that you have to pay if, you've, uh, if you're using the property and it's in a company. So you, you'd want to avoid that Plus, you'd want to get benefit from capital gains tax, principal private residence exemption, which you wouldn't get if it was in a company. Um, yep. So you'd almost certainly uh, buy that directly, definitely. Um, but sort of widening that out, yeah, the, the rules of thumb, I mean, that's absolutely right. That's what people want to know. Um, and so that's definitely the rule of thumb. If it's a personal use property, it's in all likelihood going to be personal ownership. Now, one thing we're doing a lot of is to help clients to mitigate their inheritance tax is to use multiple family members to buy the property. And that has to be structured very carefully. But the reason that you do that is to spread the IHT risk, perhaps pass it to younger generations. They benefit, everyone benefits from their own exemption from inheritance tax in the UK. So the more people you can spread that around effectively, then um, the, the, the lower the, the IHT bill at the end of the day. So. And sorry, IHT is inheritance tax that I'm, I'm talking about there. Um, yeah. The rule of thumb for um, you know, investment is if there's going to be any scale to the investment um, and if you're going to be using debt, then you, you want to be thinking about a company. Okay, so like we, as if we prepared this before, if I'm a, a big investor from the Middle East who wants to go and buy 30 units in Manchester, student accommodation, the rule of thumb might suggest it's more sensible to hold that kind of purchase within a structure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's. Right. I, I mean, that, that's a great example. It's very common asset class. Yeah. So look, I, I think we're coming to the end of the chit chat. There's a load of questions, but one thing to ask, which will be relevant, maybe maybe Chris can run through that. If someone wants to get themselves organised, if someone wants to start talking about buying a property, I've talked about this in all my webinars. It's critical to build a team of people around you. Post-COVID, the real estate market bias is, is not going to be as straightforward, as simple as it used to be. Um, building a team, great real estate broker who can give you advice on buying the best property in the right place to make sure your investment is as good as possible. A decent mortgage, mortgage brokerage, I would recommend Ennis as one of the world's leading mortgage brokerages. But then equally, you need to then go and sit down with Alistair to discuss the process in terms of from maybe a private client perspective, which would be the structuring, the tax advice, but equally trousers, multi 
channeled. So, um, you know, we've done work with your colleague Emma in London, who's helped with the conveyancing process and making sure that that transaction happens as smoothly as possible. And then on top of that, speaking to someone like Chris Fiducci, international firm who can book um, structures in many different jurisdictions can make sure as well that between Alistair's tax advice and Chris's setting up your structure, you're making the, um, the should we say, investment as clean and as straightforward as possible. And that can be protected for many, many generations on. So your hard work and, and, and hard earned money as well looks after. Um, so to go into a few questions, um, this was an early question that's come in from Alberto. Um, what are the approximate costs of opening such structure? Um, Maybe. The, uh, no one ever likes the answer I give, but I'm going to give it anyway. It's, Wishy -washy. Uh, uh, it, it varies greatly, right? It, it, it really does. I mean, it, it, look, I, th I think I'll, I'll try and answer the question directly, though. You know, if, you, if you're going to set up a, a single company to uh, own a single asset, um, let's call it a piece of UK real estate, um, then it's, it's simply not going to be that expensive. Um, I would say, you know, ballpark numbers, maybe $5,000 to set it up and say $7,500 a year to run it. Now, if you have multiple assets, whether it's real estate or otherwise, if you've got a complex uh, family or, or, you know, business issues that need to be considered, then the structure will become more complex and there will be more work to do and the costs will go up. Um, but yeah, I think starting point would be around those numbers I mentioned. And, and does that cost vary significantly jurisdiction to jurisdiction, i.e. Jersey versus BVI or, or wherever it might be, or is it all about the same? Um, well, for us, it's all about the same because we can, we can set you up a company, um, you know, in any offshore jurisdiction, but we'll, we'll be doing the administration from Jersey. So our, our costs remain the same. And I think when you asked earlier about the benefits of Jersey, and I think one of the benefits I didn't mention was uh, the quality of the, uh, uh, of the people. Uh, and, you know, you, you've got very, you know, good experienced people working in these firms in Jersey and, you know, it's their time that you pay for. So uh, I think, yeah, the cost, the cost is, is, is the same, uh, especially nowadays with the costs of uh compliance and everything going up across the world i think that that that's all being or is in the process of being reused. yeah fine and alistair maybe one for you then um which i think you touched on earlier but maybe a really straight answer to the question um and I, I know the answer will, will an spv protect me from uk iht um no no it won't anymore uh toby right. no um Unfortunately, so yeah, you're looking at other mitigation techniques that we, we talked about um, already. So splitting ownership, um, using debt, debt can help. Um, so obviously that's where you guys can can assist. Um, so it's not just a you know a straightforward decision. Even if a client's sitting on a big pile of cash, very often that that's the case with our clients. They can afford to buy these assets outright. Um, but you know, part of coming to speak to us is is also you know the benefits of using debt for for tax purposes as well to you know enhance your returns if you're an investor or to mitigate a future IHT bill if you're if you're buying a, a property to 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 use in London or wherever it may be. Wherever it may be. And on that point, Alistair, is is there there's not there isn't there an exemption on um, not exemption but 
isn't there a way to uh, deal with IHT for commercial real estate in the UK using structure? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I was talking about Resi, but that's a really important point to know. So again, if you're talking commercial real estate, then your your Jersey structure or your BBI structure will protect you from inheritance tax. So absolutely, you will not see or you shouldn't see investors from outside the UK buying in the commercial space uh, uh, in, their, in their own names. Uh, they should be using an offshore offshore company for sure. Yeah, fine. And, and on that note, I guess as well, when you, when you mentioned there, Alistair, that you can use debt in order to protect from IHT, just, just to be clear, that has to be done on first registration of the title or, or when you purchase the property rather than at refinance or 10, 15 years down the line when you think, geez, maybe I should start, start thinking about this. Um, one, one question for me, when, when, when you do change ownership, so if, if someone's watching now who owns an asset in London that wants to move that into a company, into an, an, an SPV, having watched this webinar mm. with information, at that point, can they then refinance in order to protect themselves again from the IHT or is that, does it have to be done on absolute first, first ownership? It's a good question. I mean, it, it goes like that. And actually, um, there may be some tax benefits to doing it that way because there's a couple of things here. So, so one, absolutely right to point out that generally speaking, you, you need to take out the debt when you acquire the property in order for it to be effective. And that's for income tax and inheritance tax. Um, if you're talking about restructuring existing property and shifting a property into a, into a company, for example, from personal uh, names, then, you know, that triggers other taxes. So SDLT, stamp duty land tax, for example, would be a big issue to, to overcome. However, if, you, if, you, if there's sufficient benefit in doing that and taking, taking that hit, then definitely one idea to explore would be the company actually acquiring the property from you rather than um, just transferring it to the company and you own the shares because you would get... Um, that potential inheritance tax benefit as well as, as income tax. But for, from the company's perspective, that would be the first time it's taking out debt. Um, so that, that would be okay anyway. If the, and it's slightly with different with anyway. Fine. And that leads, the reason I asked that question is there's another question within the Q and A's. So given the subdued market in the UK, um, is it possible and possible downward pressure on pricing which is, we'll see, um, is now a good time to restructure existing real estate assets? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we're seeing you know, an awful lot of uh, restructuring and have done over the last few years due to tax changes in the UK, which make it no longer efficient to hold your, your real estate in a, in a corporate vehicle if it's for uh, residential and it's for family use. Um, and one of the issues with that is there's a, a capital gains tax charge if there's any gain in, in value in the property. Um, but with the current situation and generally the, the sort of pricing in, in London over the last couple of years, um, I think we're likely to see further, further downward pressure uh, during this period. And so it's a great time to think about restructuring. A lot of people might have put it off. Um, due to these types of costs, should definitely be looking at it again um, and doing cost benefit analysis for sure. 
fine. And then maybe a question better lined up for, um, for Chris. So if an individual is looking to purchase a property in a company, do they need to use a firm to set that up or is it possible to do, to do yourself? Um, in, in theory, it's possible to do it yourself, um, but uh, not, uh, not necessarily in Jersey, but you, the, again, you have to think about the, the, the benefits of having uh, you know, professionals who are, uh, do this day in, day out, um, doing this for you, and also you know, bearing liability. Um, you know, so if we set up a company, we act as directors on that company, if that company doesn't make the tax return uh, on time, that you know that is uh, that's something that that is our responsibility, right? Um, and okay. a lot of companies in this part of the world don't don't really want to have to deal, and they shouldn't have to deal with that sort of administrative burden. Yeah, I think I guess if if, if you're talking about setting up a UK SPV to hold a really simple property, then you know, but if you want to get good, like real good advice, speak to us to get all the tax set up properly yourself to set up the structure properly for large asset holdings certainly it makes absolute sense to use a, a good well-appointed firm who know what they're doing can set the property um, the, the structure up in the right restriction but also then like I said manage the ongoing flow of costs tax returns and the big one which is the liability to to have any of the mistakes that you might make in your busy life um, there's lots of questions so let's keep trotting on um, would a company owned by a trust be protected? Um, sorry, would a company owned by a trust protect an IHT benefit when buying a residential property? I'm assuming that's asking if a property held in trust, does that protect you from IHT? And I think that's the same answer as before, Alistair, which is, it, it, you know, it, it kind of looks straight through the structure these days. Yeah, it's, it's quite a complicated one, that. Uh, an interesting question. So if, if you have a company which is owned by a trust, then that's not really going to help you uh, for IHT purposes. Um, and that's on the basis that the person who's creating the structure actually wants to you know, use this underlying property. But there are certain circumstances where a trust itself can, can give some residual benefit. And here, this is in relatively rare cases these days, um, but let's say a very wealthy individual wants to uh, pass on assets to younger family members, but they're too young or he or she is worried that, you know, the kids will have access to too, too many assets too young. Then what they might think about doing is setting up a trust with um, Christopher, for example, they transfer uh, cash to the trustees and the trustees are the ones who actually acquire the property. Now, there is an ongoing IHT charge, but it's 6% every 10 years, basically. And that's on the net value. So again, if the trustees uh, use debt, then the actual tax charge every 10 years would be relatively uh, low. So in those types of, I guess, uh, outlier uh, in the grand scheme of things, circumstances, then a trust can still be uh, beneficial. Otherwise, it's usually actually um, adds to the tax burden if anything so we don't we're not recommending them in in many cases these days okay and um so in regards to the income tax you mentioned earlier um mm. is an individual's global income taken into consideration when looking at their uk tax bracket or is it just the uk rental property that's subject to tax maybe another uh, one if you are 
Yeah, yeah, it depends. Um, it depends on the circumstances. So, if we're talking about non-residents, uh, which I assume we are, non-UK residents uh, in this case, then um, it's just their UK source income. If they're UK resident, then it, it would be their generally their global um, income, unless they're what's called not domiciled in the UK, in which case it's it's slightly different um, tax regime and. You know, we can talk about that, but that, that adds, I think, too much complexity. So non-residents, just the UK, UK residents, everything um, is the simple answer. Yeah, you could do an entire webinar just on UK DOM, UK non-DOM, and where people are situated in the world, right? And it would be uh, long and, and, and interesting for some and snore for, for a few people. Um, Chris, for you, how many residential units would you recommend? Uh, so if I was buying residential units, how many would, uh, at what point would you recommend me buying them within a structure? How many would I need to buy? Is it four, five, 20, a hundred? How many, how many does it sort of tick into becoming a benefit? I mean, as Alistair alluded to earlier, right, it, it is a matter of scale, but again, it, it depends, uh, again, case to case. So how much, how much debt are you, are you taking? You know, the, from that point of view, does it make sense? To, to use the structure, um, I, you know that, that's that's going to be the, the main driver, probably from a tax point of view. Um, you know, the, the, then the other the other the other uh, issue is what I alluded to earlier, which is simply administrative, uh, you know, affairs that go along with holding four, five, ten properties. You know, uh, presumably, if you're going to be doing that, you you you've got a day job to do as well. You know, do you want to have to deal with uh, you know being the point of contact for your agents for the tax man? And all the rest of it. So uh, I mean, it, it's case by case uh, is the is the answer, really. Yeah, fine, superb. And then another one for you, Chris. Um, if if I wanted to be a director within my company, does that cause an economic substance issue? Um, again, it, it depends. Um, for a real estate holding company, probably not. Um, but again, you know. Because you, we, we would appoint the majority of directors in Jersey anyway. Uh, and if you wanted to be the sole director on that company, then, uh, it, then it might do because you wouldn't have majority directors in the place where the company is incorporated. But again, if you're the director on that company, you're the one dealing with all the day-to-day -day administration of it. Uh, so it, it defeats sort of half the purpose of, of setting, setting the company up in the first place, I would, I would argue. Yeah, sure. And, and then Alistair, one, one from Jerry Parks, who we all know well, assuming the UK government will need to pay for various rescue, bailout and furlough schemes currently in place, is there a concern that will be significant tax changes around the world? Um, and how can we plan for those now? If that's an easy answer for you. Yeah, no, thanks for that one, Jerry. That's a, that's a humdinger that you put in there for us. Um, Look, no, it's a great question. A lot of people um, asking about it. There's been quite a lot of press coverage about this issue. And, you know, I think it happened after the financial crisis as well. So it's, it's no surprise that people are asking the question and, and thinking about and worrying about, you know, how the UK government is going to pay for all this stuff. Um, you know, they've talked about, about tinkering with in changing inheritance tax for quite a long time now. So, you know, look, I wouldn't be surprised if, there were tax changes in relation to uh, inheritance tax they were kind of they're on the cards and have been discussed so we're probably there though talking about more about removing some of the 
the marginal release that you get at the moment that have maybe been abused a bit in the past. Um, you know, top rate of income tax going up you know, by a couple of pence, adding to national insurance, all of those things. I think they're the, they're the more likely targets, if I'm honest. So how it affects investors in this case into, into UK property um, is marginal. SDLT has been hammered over the, the last few years uh, anyway, as far as, you know, higher value properties are concerned and companies buying UK residential property. So I think unless they, you know, so confident in, in the strength of the UK real estate market, that would be a pretty dangerous game to play because, you know, I think overall stamp duty land tax returns, you know, may have dipped because it's, um, you know, affected the market already. So, um, and then there is another change next year for uh, SDLT for overseas buyers on the cards. So, so let's see, but I, I hope we won't see any um, significant increases in the context we're talking about. Sure. And then one from our good friend, Tom Kimber, um, newly at New Haven. Is there a point, uh, and maybe either of you can answer this, is there a point where a certain number of residential properties um, becomes considered commercial um, due to the number of assets held for tax purposes, or would, do they remain very, very distinct? Yeah, I'll, I'll take this one, Toby. The, it depends what tax you're talking about. So if it's um, stamp duty land tax, then there is a something called the six or more rule, basically. So if you're buying six or more uh, units at the same time, even if they're residential units and it's the same uh, seller and, and purchaser, then you can benefit from the commercial rates of um, stamp duty land tax rather than the residential ones. But that doesn't apply to all other taxes. Um, so it doesn't change the nature of of the properties themselves, but in limited circumstances, particularly with SDLT, it can uh, get you a, a saving. So I should sorry, probably just say there, Toby, that the top rate of um, SDLT at the moment for Resi is fifteen uh, percent um, over a certain value, and for commercial, it's five percent. So there's a huge difference. So potentially a significant savings if you are buying a large set of units above that, that six number, especially if they're of high value, in which case you'd be triggering the sort of 15% stamp duty power. Yeah. Uh, again, with all these questions, it's kind of case by case, situation dependent, um, which is why everyone's urged to contact directly. So we've gone on for 40 minutes. There's one more question, um, which I'll hand in immediately, and then maybe you can add to, to my sort of short um, answer. But if I have the ability to fund residential property purchase, without the need for using debt. Is there any benefit of using debt to offset the asset value for inheritance tax instead of taking out life insurance to cover the inheritance tax? So I think in short, um, you can benefit from both taking debt against the property and having some level of um, life insurance. Um, if I'm right, Alistair, the, the inheritance tax calculation is based on the equity within the property rather than the total value of the property. So if you have a million pound house with 700,000 pounds outstanding as a mortgage, um, your IHT liability is just the remaining 300,000, which in that scenario would be below your threshold um, or your allowance anyway. Um, so I guess the, the short answer is yes, there's a benefit to taking debt out. Um, of course, everyone must check the cost of debt against the cost potentially of the IHT. 
Um, but there aren't too many mortgages out there that are at 40% of, uh, you know, per month or per, per year or per 10 years. Um, what, what, what's the sort of bigger answer to that? Can, can, can they benefit better from taking a life insurance policy or is debt both way or is it a combination of the two that makes sense? Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right, the, the summary there, Toby. I, I suppose the other point just to, to, to mention now is that um, you know, as, if you've got a capital repayment mortgage, then obviously you're going to re, repay the equity over a set number of years. As you get into the latter stage of that, the, the, the IHT benefit of the, the mortgage stops. So one of the discussions that you'll have with your clients, I'm sure, is you know, interest only or, or capital repayment. Um, some sort of snazzy offset arrangement or whatever it might be. Um, but that's really important for tax as well. So if you're looking at the mortgage as your I, IHT mitigation, then interest only type mortgages make a lot of sense. Um, and um, you can't just refinance later and get, get the benefit of, um, you know, the additional capital deduction. So, so that's really important. For those listening that maybe wouldn't know the difference between a repayment and a, an interest only mortgage to sort of give the dumb, dumb, dumb answer, an interest-only mortgage is where you just service the cost of the mortgage, whereas a capital repayment mortgage would be where you're paying down your outstanding bonds on a, on a monthly basis. So at the end of your term, 20, 30 years, you have no mortgage, which means the entire property is, is equity, correct? Correct. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So, so yeah, I think and a combination, you know, looking at a combination makes sense. Obviously, when it comes to life insurance, I'm not a life insurance broker, but it's pretty obvious that if you're, you know, in your in your 60s or 70s and you're a smoker, for example, then the cost of life cover uh, of any significant amount is going to be very, very high. Um, if if you're in your 40s or your 30s or your 50s in good health, then um, a joint life type policy perhaps uh, will be a, a cost effective solution what what i found for clients based in this region um in the middle east um is that you know a lot of them don't really like the idea of life insurance whereas you know a sharia compliant um debt arrangement which would also be deductible and i should say actually interesting there's some some quite um quite a lot of scope for enhanced benefits of iht protection the way that the sharia mortgages are actually structured um because you're you're essentially the bank owns the property from day one under these arrangements and you're, you're sort of buying it off them as, as you go along, which actually can be very beneficial for, um, for inheritance tax if you're looking at refinancing. So a um, bit niche, but um, important uh, to make that. Never even come across before, I'll pick up with you um, another time. Um, so look, I think that's, that's all the questions. I, I don't know if anyone's got anything to add quickly to the end of that webinar.